Last week, I shared with you a, a missionary called John G. Patton. He, was, he served as a missionary to some islands off the northeast of Australia. It's called the New Herbities back then. Now it's called something else. It's changed names. Vanuatu, thank you. And um, man, he, maybe you've read the book. So he was a missionary there, and he has some amazing stories. Some heartbreaking, some actually make you smile. Let me tell you one that made me smile when I was reading it. Um, He got to know um, a couple of chiefs. So they have a number of tribes throughout the island. And one of the chiefs he got to know. And so the chief comes to his house one morning, knocks on the door and says, can we go for a walk? And and John says, yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. And so the chief and him go out on a walk and they walk throughout the island for hours. The chief, they're approaching his house when he's getting back, and the chief leaves to go back to his village. And John walks up to his house, and the doors open, the windows are cracked and crashed, and he goes inside, and the entire house is ransacked. The chief took him out so his people can come in and take everything that he had. His, uh, his teapot, his books, his uh, stationery and paper for writing, any valuables he had. Any, uh, I don't think he, I think he had one revolver, but he hid that, so that wasn't taken. Uh, but he took all the muskets, the, the gunpowder, the hatchets, anything of value was taken out of the house and gone. And so he runs back to the chief and asks, why did you do this? I want my stuff back. I've only loved you and served you. And the chief said, I don't know what you're talking about, essentially, and just went about his day. And so John goes back to his hut trying to recoup from losing everything. Now, he's in, it's 1860s, and he's literally in the middle of nowhere. He didn't have a whole lot, but nonetheless, it was a lot to him because it's all he had left. A lot had to do with his wife's memoirs before she passed away on the island a couple years before. And so he was heartbroken. Nothing got any better. He went to bed, and all of a sudden, when he woke up that morning, one of the natives was running up to him because the chief had sent him. And the, the, the native looked at him and says, are, are we going to get punished? What's going to happen to us? And, and John's thinking, what are, what are you talking about? I, I don't know why you're so upset. It, are, are you going to punish us? Did you call your God? Because we see the smoky dragon on the horizon. It was a British warship on its way into the harbor. And Patton thought he had called his God and God had sent this warship to come in. And so Patton said, I, I, I'm going to have to tell the captain everything that's happened here. I'm going to have to tell the truth. I'm a man of truth. And so the native went and told the chief. The chief came running to him and said, what, what must we do to ensure that we aren't punished? And he says, well, if everything shows back up on my porch by the time the captain's in here, I will tell him everything is A-OK. And so the chief scrambles. The word spreads throughout the island. And all of a sudden, his stuff starts coming up out of the jungle and starts being dumped on his porch. And except one thing, the teapot. And so the, the ship is sailing in, it's laying anchor, the captain's getting in, and then the chief said, trust me, it's on the other side of the island, it's on its way, I promise you, it'll be here. Please, please tell your captain that we are good and we're okay. And Patton said, all right, fine, just never do this again. And sure enough, the teapot came, the captain came over and he shared with him, everything's okay, but then shared with him a little bit of the story of what just happened. And so the captain said, uh, let's do a little show of force. And so the captain decided to do a whole broadside off into the sea just to remind the people not to mess with John Patton. That's an amazing story of a missionary. I don't think I'll ever have a story as cool as that. 
And as we read through the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, we hear missionary story after missionary story. They are amazing. We hear of the interactions of the apostles with uh, Simon the magician who wanted to lay hold of the, the power of God. Like, how can I perform that and get rich? And they spoke to him. The boldness of the Ethiopian eunuch spoke to him and the truth that happened. Those are the same disciples read about in the Gospels. And do you know what? I'm not that impressed when I read about them. They're, they're putting their foot in their mouth. They're, they're flubbing their way through following Christ, and they don't quite get it. We kind of more look at them like, come on, guys. You kind of hit your head, your hand against your head. You should get it by now. So what changed? How did they go from the Gospels, being people we would look at and, and cringe at when they say certain things, to the very apostles who take the world to the ends of the earth? What changed in them? Victory changed around them, and victory came in their life. Brothers and sisters, this morning we're in John chapter 16. This is the second part of the sermon last week, which was remain, love, and become. This one is remain in victory, specifically Christ's victory. The cross changed everything for these disciples. They went from mere men, and they remained men, but in the power of God did some amazing, miraculous things with the gospel. At the same time, they endured great suffering. And so Jesus, from chapter 13 in John through chapter 17, is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's preparing them to take over the responsibility, the ministry, and the mission that God gave Christ. Now Christ is giving them. He is sending us into the world, and he's sending the disciples in power because of his victory on the cross. You and I, brothers and sisters, as we read this, there's not a one-to-one correlation for us in here. This is what Jesus is teaching and sharing with the apostles. But nonetheless, from a 10,000-foot level, we can see how you and I are to remain in Christ's victory to this day so that we can powerfully proclaim the gospel and live out gospel principles and the ministry of Christ in our life every day and experience great joy because of it, great satisfaction that nothing else in the world can give. And so we're in the end of chapter 15, the last two verses, and then we'll go throughout chapter 16 today. And this is Jesus' preparation for us to live in a world that doesn't know or love him. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, as we open up your scripture, we ask for your spirit to be the teacher this morning. We ask for him to give us the ability to convict us of sin and to clarify us of your truth. So may we live in the freedom and knowledge that you have uh, secured victory for us. May we celebrate and experience great joy because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open up with me to John chapter 15. It's the last two verses, uh, verse 26. And I want to read through verse 4. I want you want, what I want you to notice is that the, the disciples anticipate persecution and avoid apostasy. Verse 26 says this, When the counselor comes... The one who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. Throughout this gospel, he has promised someone to come and to help us. But he's also promised, just previous to this, persecution as the result of being his disciple. Intense persecution. 
A persecution that people will think they are honoring God with this persecution. They will throw you out of the synagogues. In fact, they will kill you and think they're offering and rendering service to God. Well, there's an irony in this. Because what is actually taking place, when, when we are martyred for our faith in Christ, it actually is an offering to God. God receives it. It's just not the offering from the person doing the execution. It's the one being executed is offering our life. And God receives that offering. It's pleasing to him because it stands as a testimony against those who refuse and reject him, who do not know him. And so many disciples would face these horrors. Many of these disciples who he's teaching right now, these 11, are going to die at the hands of others. They'll be persecuted out of religious zealousy, anger, and frustration. Saul will do it, soon to be Paul. And you know what? That hasn't stopped. This type of persecution, it started then, but it continues to this day. I heard a story two years ago in Nigeria. A sister named Rose was asleep in her home with her husband and her son. And one night, men came into into the town, were creating great commotion, and barged into her home, knowing that her and her family were believers. They were Christians, and these men were not. And they woke her up, and they woke the, 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 the husband up, and the son stood them before her and executed them before her eyes. And then turned to her and tried to force her to make a conversion, to say, Allah Akbar, God is great. But she refused. And she didn't refuse in silence. She ran. She ran out of the house, down the street, by everyone who was standing and watching. Others were being persecuted for their love of Christ, but those who weren't were watching And as she was running, they were chanting at her, proclaiming, you must convert. Say Allah Akbar. She wouldn't. She would say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And each time she would do it, her back would be slashed. And she kept running as long as she could until the loss of blood was too great and she collapsed. And the men left, thinking their job was done. But after two days, she was nursed back to health and continued to live in that town, proclaiming the love of Jesus again and again. The greatest danger to a disciple is not persecution. It's apostasy. It's abandoning the faith. And it's not just abandoning church and singing songs and being a part of a small group. That's not what we're really abandoning. It's abandoning the love, the truth, and the joy Jesus offers. And only he can offer. That's what one abandons when they leave the faith. If you're in small groups or you take the questions that's in your bulletin this week, I know you know of someone in your life who has said thanks but no thanks to a life with Christ. And you know what they're walking away from. I've had it happen many times, especially as a youth pastor. I saw it year after year. That didn't discourage me from doing it myself. Because as John told us in chapter 15, the love of Christ, the joy of Christ, and the truth of Christ are far superior than anything the world gives. And so the greatest danger to you and I is not remaining in victory. is abandoning the faith. And so we need to anticipate persecution and avoid apostasy. Avoid abandoning. And how can we know if we do face ridicule, persecution, some sort of hardship because we believe in Christ? Look what the Apostle Peter says in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God and, and uh, the Spirit of God rests on you. The closeness to God in that persecution is an immense blessing. And that's why Jesus says, I send to you the Spirit of truth. 
That on one hand, he's going to prepare us for persecution, hardship, and ridicule. But on the other hand, we can prepare as much as we want, but we have to know that we're not alone in doing so. And so he gives us the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the counselor. And so as Christ physically leaves his disciples, the presence of God does not leave us. Christ is sending the Holy Spirit, our advocate, who, like Christ, is truly God, to be with us, comforting and guiding us from the time we believe until the time we die and we stand in the presence of God. Now, to the disciples, this is a little odd. Because it brings up the next point of how we remain in victory. Disciples live with the Spirit's conviction and clarification. Look with me in verse 5. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asked me, where are you going? Yet because you, I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I'm telling you to the, the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you he takes it from what is mine and will declare it to you. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And it's to your benefit that I go. Now, I I sit here, and every Christian that has ever read this, at some point has asked, how can that be possible? The disciples were asking it. I still ask it. Wait, how is it to my benefit? How is it better for me that Christ physically leaves and, and the Spirit comes? I think, why not both? Can I just have both? That'd be great. It's not like it's Peter Parker and Spider Man. They can't be in the same room at the same time. That's not it. So, why does Jesus say, it's to your benefit that I go? It all has to do with Old Testament prophecies. If you read uh, the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he starts off by saying it was promised that the Holy Spirit was to be poured out on his people. That can only happen in the victory of Christ on the cross. He was in glory. He was humiliated. This is Christ. Came to earth, was put up on a cross, and then after the cross, he rose again to the right hand of the Father. And in that moment, what was promised is the Holy Spirit will be poured out on his people. That God would come and dwell with his people like he originally intended to do with Adam and Eve. That the truly God, his Spirit, would come live with us. And so the disciples don't quite recognize this. And to this day, I still wrestle with it with a little bit. I, if Jesus was just physically present, I think ever the whole world would believe at this point by now. It would have come around. If this many people believed just off of word of mouth, how much more if Jesus was physically present? Well, that's in the Lord's wisdom and in the Lord's sovereignty. He has allowed it to take place as it is. And so in this partnership with the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives us two main ministries. So as believers, we think about our our relationship to Holy Spirit. Our mind probably goes first to the spiritual gift that he's given us to work in the church, but Jesus doesn't start there. He could have said, hey, you're going to get some cool gifts. You're going to be able to teach. You're going to be able to preach, lead, all these kind of spiritual gifts. He could have started there, but he didn't. He starts with the first thing, conviction. The first role of the Holy Spirit in this world and in our life is conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is only something the Holy Spirit can do. 
The, the Spirit can convict someone and bring them to faith, have them recognize their sin, their lack of righteousness, and the impending judgment to stand before a holy and righteous God. The Spirit can do that apart from us, but we can't do that apart from the Spirit. We know that because when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you remembered a time of conviction of sin, the lack of righteousness, and the impending judgment, and we placed our faith in Christ because of that. I want to escape that and have something better in its place. I want to have a joy that's far superior. And Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is coming in the world, going to work through us to do this throughout the world. A world that's hostile to the things of God. And so the Spirit convicts. Do we believe the Spirit convicts? When we watch TV, when we see news articles, the way people believe, in the back of our mind, are we secure in knowing the Holy Spirit is convicting that? I, I do. I believe it. I know the Holy Spirit. However, we live in a world that's hell-bent, pun intended, on suppressing that conviction. Fighting against it. Ignoring it. Suppressing it. Numbing it. But nonetheless, it is there. It can be resisted, but it is there. And for those who do believe, recognize that conviction and turn. They repent. They turn away. And those who do believe, we get to have the next best thing, the clarification of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit clarifies Christ's message and ministry. Notice, remember what he said in the second part of this? I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. It's kind of hard for the disciples to hear. What do you mean you have many things to tell us, but we can't bear them now? Do you want to know why they can't bear it? Because the cross hasn't happened yet. That's what's changed in the life of the disciples. They, they stub their toes all the time in talking with Jesus when he says, oh, when Peter gets up and says, wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how it goes. She says, I won't betray you. Get behind me. You won't die. All these things the disciples have, they don't have the reference of the cross. That lens for us, when we look back, everything makes sense because of the cross and resurrection. And so the clarification that Jesus is promising through the Spirit extends to you and I this day. Notice the next verse. When the Spirit of truth comes, what did Jesus say in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the same Spirit. This is a distinct person, but the same truth. He is truly God. And he will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit guides each and every one of us, as he did with the disciples then, us today and every disciple to come will guide us into every implication of Christ's person, his message, his ministry, his death, and exaltation. The Holy Spirit will help us to recognize how all of this plays a part. How it all, like a domino effect, enters every part of our life, re- renovating it, renewing it. We need, as disciples, we need to live with the conviction and the clarification of the Spirit. That's an amazing blessing that we have that the world doesn't have. And so we do dis- distance ourselves from the Spirit by grieving Him, it says in 1 Thessalonians. We, we can sin and grieve the Spirit, but we shouldn't. Through faith and obedience, we can remain. And so the salvation that we have and the, the gift that we've gotten, the Spirit, is a conviction, it's, self, it's clarification. And then through that clarification, we do begin to grasp something amazing. The disciples receive a permanent joy. Disciples receive a permanent joy. Look with me in verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while you will see me. Then some of the disciples said to one another, "Uh, what is this he's telling us? 
a little while and you'll not see me. Again, in a little while you'll see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They said, what is this saying a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now, put yourself in their shoes. I totally understand. Jesus is just saying, essentially, I'm departing. You won't see me again. And then this little phrase comes up. I'm going away just for a little bit and I'll be back. That's why they're, that's why they're really confused. Wait, it's just only for a little bit? I thought you were saying it, it's like a long-term thing. The disciples don't see the referent of the cross. And so Jesus kind of, it doesn't, this isn't quite a rebuke. The bigger rebuke's coming. But he says in verse 19, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said a little while? And you will not see me. Again, a little while you will see me. Truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pains because her time has come. But when she's given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because the joy of a person has been born into the world. So you have sorrow now, but, you will see, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. In that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be complete. And Jesus promises something harsh and something great at the same time. There's a tension he's calling to us as disciples to live in. You will have sorrow, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Now, in the immediate context, he is speaking of the cross. He's foreshadowing what's going to happen. That there will be a time of sorrow in which your heart will be so full of sorrow, you can't imagine it ever being changed. That this will be your lot in life forever. But, and buts in scripture are awesome. They're either really bad or really good. This one is really good. But your sorrow will turn to joy. Joy in scripture is satisfaction. It's contentment. It's not just happiness. To be fully and completely satisfied. And he gives this analogy that is throughout the Old Testament of labor pains and giving birth. Throughout the Old Testament, it always says, the greatest joy is preceded by great sorrow. There is a time of hardship and heartache that always precedes the joy that we expect and hope for. I, I know this vividly. When I read this and when I continue to do it, I think of when Payson was born, our first. I remember that one vividly and through all the preceding kids, I remember less and less and less. I don't know why that is, it just is. And with this next, the fifth one, I, I don't know if I'm going to remember anything. I'm just, I'm just going to be holding the baby. But with Payson, I remember that day vividly. I remember I put my foot in my mouth because Kelsey was not feeling good, and I was tired, and when I'm tired, I just say dumb things. And she was making a lot of noises, and I said, you're a terrible sick person. Well, it turns out she was in labor. <laughs> don't worry, I paid the penalty of that sin, and I continue to do that, okay? So I know that. But I also remember being my first, I, I was so anxious and we got to get to the hospital and we have all the things we're supposed to bring uh, from a camera to all the things Kelsey wanted and music. And so we go to the hospital in the middle of the night thinking she's in labor and, and we, they sit us down at the table and uh, the doctor checks and she says, oh, you're not dilated. Sorry, you're going to have to go home. Now, as a newbie dad, I had brought everything in with me. Here's a, a, if you're expecting dad and this is your first, here's a key tip. Don't bring anything in until after the baby comes, all right? Just, no one told me that, so I, I was that rookie dad coming in. Everybody can spot me. So we had to go home. I eventually fell asleep. And then three hours later, we went back to the hospital. And she pushed and went through labor, I think, another three or four hours till the baby finally came. 
And I remember that moment vividly because I looked at the, but Kelsey, my wife's face. When she held Payson for the first time, she didn't take her eyes off him for 15 minutes. I remember I tried to get a little conversation. They're, hey, how's it going? She ignored me for 15, 20 minutes straight. My first, ex- my first feeling when Payson was born was jealousy. I had been replaced. <laughs> but that vivid moment of joy has come through each and every kid. But the joy Jesus is speaking about is greater than what a child can bring. This joy cannot be taken. This joy cannot deteriorate. This joy will remain because it's grounded in something that's eternal. Christ himself and his victory on the cross. In that time, the world is going to rejoice. It had looked like it had won, but know this, there is a time of coming when you will see me again. And in that moment, you will have joy inexpressible. And so when it says your joy, it's very personal, isn't it? It's meant to be. The joy Jesus is describing is two things. It's positional and it's personal. Look at the position that changes when Christ is raised from the dead and we, we believe in him. It says this in John chapter 1, verse 12. This is what he wrote to prepare us. But all who did receive him, being Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer outsiders. We're no longer servants. We are true children of God. And every right that is supposed to, a true child is supposed to get, we get. Every blessing and benefit of being God's children is ours. We don't have to ask or expect or worry about it leaving. It is ours. It's guaranteed. That inheritance will not change and no one can take it from you. So it's positional, but it's also personal. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 15? I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. I know your name. You know my name. From the foundations of the world, I knew you. And in that friendship, we have loyalty, we have intimacy, he, he joins in our joys and our sorrows. We have confidence knowing that that won't change. And unconditional love, this joy is positional and it is personal. But some of us may be sitting here thinking, I like the description of that, but I don't know what it feels like. I don't experience a satisfaction that these disciples are promised. Or, or maybe I, I had that at one point in my life, but I don't have it now. What does Jesus say right after this? After he promises this joy, what does he say? Verse 23, look, he gives us a direction. If that isn't a part of our life or just seems out of reach, what does he say? In that day, you will not ask me anything, but truly I tell you, anything you ask in the Father's name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Throughout this final discourse, Jesus has said, ask and you will receive. Ask the Father in my name again and again and again. This is a mark of remaining in Christ, is coming before the Lord and asking for it. He's promised joy. It's his will. Ask for it. How has it become produced? How does it become a reality in our life? By remaining faith and obedience. When the, this time, when this um, satisfaction has not been present in my life when I trace back and look at the steps. It's actually because there's a part of my life, there's a place in which I am not either believing what is true or acting upon what is true. I wish it was a more complex formula and super impressive, but it's not. It is that simple. And so Jesus 
directs us. He gives us an imperative. Ask the Father in my name for this very thing, and he will give it. What an amazing blessing he offers you and I. And so the spirit of truth is coming to proclaim something amazing and to remind us again and again. And so these two threads are intertwined. When we ask the Father for the needs of our heart to be met, we believe and obey that he, will, he heard them and he will meet them. And in doing so, we get to lay hold of a victory that the world does not know, but we can know each and every day. Because disciples live in Christ's victory. And we live out of Christ's victory. This is how Jesus concludes. And it is a powerful message to each and every one of us. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Notice that. He just says, ask in my name. But that, that is something you do. It's in a state of understanding, but you don't have to ask in my name because the Father already loves you. This is not some approval setting that you need to do and punch a straight ticket that God already loves you. Verse 27, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have gone into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And here are the disciples. They strike again. The disciples said, Look, now you're speaking plainly to us and not using figures of language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Great, now you're not speaking. I get it. Finally. But if you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus did this with the disciples. He spoke in parables, and then when he went away, the disciples asked him questions, and he explained it to them. And so the disciples' proclamation right here is something more true than they know. We know that you came from God, and you know everything. We know you know everything. My head, my heart, this world, everything in it, you are aware of it. Nothing stands without. And so Jesus, because of their pretension, kind of rebukes them a little bit. In verse 31, Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? After everything you've seen me do and say, now you believe, because I'm not speaking to you in figures of speech. Indeed, your hour is coming. Excuse me. Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. He issues a little rebuke, but ultimately he sees through it to encourage these men. They do scatter and they do abandon him on the cross. No one is around to be seen. They each go back to their home. Two disciples walk back on the day he rose from the dead to Emmaus, thinking this is all done and over. But the father never leaves the son. And so he issues this promise full of truth, this, this, this encouragement full of truth and promise. Notice two things are true about us for the rest of time as a believer. That we are in Christ, but we are also in the world. A disciple living in victory will experience living in Christ. What's the result of being in Christ? What will he have? What does he say? Peace. What's the result of living in the world? Suffering. Those two are not mutually exclusive. Jesus is not intending us to think there'll be times of peace in your life and times of suffering in your life. Jesus is actually saying those intersect. The time of suffering will be a time of peace. The time of peace will be a time of suffering. 
In all my years of being a pastor and knowing pastors, no one has ever said to me or anyone I know, my greatest sense of closeness to the Lord came on a sunny day. Never. I've never heard that. It's always the opposite. I was closest to the Lord in my time of greatest hardship, time of greatest persecution, time of greatest uncertainty, the time of greatest loss. The Lord was closest to me and I experienced a richness of peace that I've never known before. I too can testify my greatest joy and satisfaction in this life has come through hard times and hard things. Those two things of being in the world and in Christ intersect at joy and sorrow, peace and hardship. And that's a promise that the saints have been proclaiming for years. You remember Rose? That story, a, a, a pastor went to go speak to her and he asked her, why are you still in this town? Don't you fear persecution? And she says, what can they take from me anymore? My, my husband and my son are in victory with Christ. I have a joy that can't be taken. And so I'll continue to proclaim the gospel here and love these people. Who else is going to do it? Who else will show them the joy and peace that only Christ can give? Remember John Patton, that funny story I was telling you about? That's one of the highlighting stories, but there's some other stories. Let me read to you his experience. And we'll close with his words today as disciples live in victory. I pray that you can live in victory as well. The next day, a wild chief followed me for about four hours with his loaded musket. And though though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and intended to my work as if he'd not been there. Fully persuaded my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up an unceasing prayer to our Lord Jesus, I left, I, I left all in his hands and felt immortal until my work is done. Trials and hair-breath hair escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow, and they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord Savior, nothing else in this world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, lo, I am with you always, even until the ends of the earth, became so real to me that it wouldn't have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power, as did St. Paul when he cried, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the faces and smile of my blessed Lord in those dreaded moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. Remain in victory, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, it is before your throne that we stand each and every day as we sing and proclaim songs of what you have done in this world and through our life. We need to take heart, for your Son has overcome this world, and his victory is our victory. We no longer stand condemned of sin. We no longer stand in a state of unrighteous living for we have been redeemed. Father, I would pray that the Spirit be moved in such a way that anybody in here who has not repented and turned, that the conviction will come upon them but end sweetly in belief. And for those of us in here who are enduring trials, persecution, and suffering, will your Spirit clarify the truth and lead us to remain in your Son's victory. It is for your glory we read these words. It is for your glory in which we continue to believe and obey the commands that you've given us. 
in place of that, meet us and give us a satisfaction that we've never known before. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.